0: Well, I uh, want to apologize, the audio did not work when we did this live, so we're going to just kind of do this um, as an audience-less message. But bottom line is, we just finished talking about the Sabbath uh, part five, dealing with some scriptures. We've looked at some of the historical things, but what's most important of all is looking at the scriptures that so many people will bring up and uh, use as um, uh, maybe evidence that the, that those who honor the Sabbath on the Saturday are, are wrong. And uh, we're going to look at those here now. Before we do, I just want to remind you listening or watching that we have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash creation instruction, and there you can get all kinds of other messages that we have done, um, our DVDs, all kinds of things like that. So uh, go there to subscribe if you would, and uh, we would sure appreciate that. Anyway, let's get started here, and I want to kind of start by looking at a term that psychologists use called confirmation bias. And I think this is going to help you understand a little bit of why we have uh, a Sunday Sabbath as well. Now, remind you again, before we get started, I'm not saying that those who go and worship on Sunday are not Christian or, or that they shouldn't even worship on Sunday. I'm all for it. What I am saying is this, though, is that Sunday is not the Sabbath and that God has set a day that was to be holy. And it is a mark of God as we've talked about before in the first century we see that it was a mark of whether you were a believer or not whether you kept the Sabbath and uh, Ezekiel even says that God has made that as a sign between him and his people so uh, again I I am not attacking those who worship on Sunday I am simply trying to uplift the truth of what scripture says in what the Sabbath is and trying to bring that day honor that God has given it. So confirmation bias basically as I said this is a term psychologists use and I'm just gonna kinda read basically what this one psychologist says about it. He says confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like a certain idea or concept to be true they end up believing it to be true. They're motivated by wishful thinking. This error leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the view one would like to be true. Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. Now, that's a pretty big deal because what we see is basically this people are gonna believe what they want to believe. And once they have that belief, they're not gonna look for or search for truth anywhere else. They're satisfied, they're comfortable where they're at. And therefore, um, to avoid from being convicted, avoid from being uncomfortable, they'll search no further. And all the devil has to do is just simply spoon feed us what we would like to be true, and his job is done. It's really the opposite of what we see as a scriptural model from the Bereans. Those Bereans, they would go and um, search the scriptures to see what, it, what these disciples were saying, if it was true or not. And I would encourage all of you to do the same. You know, I'm just a human being, just like everybody else, and humans make mistakes, but God does not and as a result of that uh, you need to check out what I'm saying go and look at the scriptures see if what the scriptures are saying are true don't take my word for it take God's word for it and so we all need to be good Bereans and not to accept truth just because it sounds good just because it's what we want to hear just because it fits with what we grew up with we need to uh, search out what truth is regardless of what the consequences of that may be anyway it continues defining this and it says confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively we pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices thus we may become prisoners of our assumptions wishful thinking is a form of self-deception such as false optimism in short People are prone to believe what they want to believe. Seeking to confirm our beliefs comes naturally while it feels strong and counterintuitive to look for evidence that contradicts our beliefs. This explains why opinions survive and spread. Again, the devil knows all he needs to do is kill the pain of conviction. And when we are stopped, uh, to, when we are stopped from being convicted, we will stop from searching out truth. And therefore, we should always be looking. This is why I think in part Jesus says, you know, the Bible is clearly uh, warning us, commanding us, encouraging us to confess our sins because he who is faithful and just will forgive us those sins. We need to search out those convictions in our life so that we can confess them. It's a very important part of our lives, but people only read the scriptures for what they already believe to be true or what they want to be true, and this gets them into trouble, and this is how these megachurches grow. His pastors will preach good, nice, pleasant things, but they won't preach anything that is convicting, any other sort of truth that will cause that believer to grow, cause that believer maybe even to uh, repent of their sins and be blessed Psalm 119 verse 71 says it is good for me that I have been afflicted that I may learn your statutes you see we should search out things that bring conviction in our life but ultimately this confirmation bias this believing what we want to believe not wanting to even search for truth any further is what keeps so many people from denying a Sabbath day not only Uh, It being Saturday, but even as I said here, uh, I believe it was last week, that even if Sunday were the Sabbath, we're not even convicted to honor that day by not doing work and doing what God has asked us to do on it, to keep it holy. Bottom line is, is there's two theological terms, eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis is reading into the scriptures what our wishful thinking is. Exegesis is taking out of the scriptures what, the, what God's word simply says. And we need to be good exegetical uh, studiers of God's word. Because otherwise, we end up being just like these who have confirmation bias and we read into what we want it to be to make us feel good and then we've just become self-deceived and that is not a good thing i want to take you to some verses here that are used against those who talk about the saturday being the sabbath and so on uh very common verses that are brought up as a matter of fact i've had this one brought up to me uh just this year Um, Colossians 2, verse 16 says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Now, first of all, let me say I agree 100%. The substance of all of these things, the Sabbath, the festivals, all of it, the whole Old Testament, the substance of it all is Jesus. And as soon as we take our eyes off of that, you're in trouble. Okay, This isn't something Jewish. This is God's word. The Torah, the law of God, uh, You know, a good friend of mine in Israel, he's a, a messianic believer, and he says this, it's not law, it's a way of life. And that is what Jesus is for us. He is a way of life. It's not this list of do's and don'ts. It's a heart to follow, a heart to follow the one we love. But people read this passage and they say, because I honor a Saturday Sabbath, they say, well, you're under the law. No, I'm not under the law. Okay? I, I love the law of God, as Psalms talks about, as Romans says we should do as well. But the confirmation bias that the church has today is this. They aren't willing to look at what day truly is the Sabbath and what it means to honor that Sabbath because they're comfortable with what they've grown up with. And as a result, they will not search for truth any further. And so what I want to do, for those of you who are willing to, to maybe be convicted, I want to search this scripture out here a little bit and uh, take you so, to some commentary of what some people say about this. Starting here with the Holman New Testament commentary, it says this regarding Colossians here. Apparently some in Colossa tried to convince the believers that spirituality was based on how well they observed certain codes of behavior. Paul mentions diets, what you eat or drink, and days, like religious festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbath day, The false teachers said that the truly spiritual maintain a particular diet and properly observed all the right holy days. What about this? Is a Christian Christian bound to strict observance of diets and days? No. Two passages of scripture make this clear. Hebrews 9.10 and Galatians 4.8-11. Here in Colossians 2.17, Paul informs us that rule keeping is just a shadow of There is no real spiritual substance. Guys, I couldn't agree less. You see, this is terrible. This is not true. Did you hear what he's saying here? The false teachers said that if we obey God's commands, that 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 is wrong. We're a false teacher to say it's good to believe. Do you know that we do have Ten Commandments? Well, kind of nine because we don't really honor the Sabbath or remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But yet, if I go to somebody and say, you know, you really shouldn't steal. That makes me a false teacher because I'm upholding the law. Romans is very clear about this. Is the law bad? Absolutely not. He says, do we then nullify the law? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. He says, is the law bad? He says, no, the law is good as long as one uses it properly in Timothy. You see, I I could go on and on and on about all of these verses talking about the law is not the problem, we are the problem. The law is good, but here he's saying you're a false teacher if you like to keep the law. No, I love to keep the law, I break it all the time, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who's rescued me from this body of death, but I understand that I'm not gonna be saved by keeping that law, but rather there are blessings and spiritual substance to it. Why? Because the word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the law because the law is the word of God. Remember, Jesus never came to get rid of the law. He said, I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, fulfilling it doesn't mean one and done. Fulfill it means to do it for us in our stead, because he knew we would be incapable of doing it in order to be saved, to be holy. Because you break the law, you're unholy. And unholiness cannot be in God's presence. Therefore... When I break the law, I am under the covenant of Jesus Christ himself, Yeshua. The Lord saves. He saves me. And now the condemnation of that law has been taken away that I remain holy and I have access to that most holy place in the presence of God. That's what this means. But he also is saying this in this commentary, that there are two passages that make it very clear in Scripture that we are not bound to the law. Well, I find that very funny because neither one of these do that. First of all, here, Hebrews 9 verse 10. Hebrews 9 verse 10, uh, I'm not gonna go over this because in our Hebrew study, we have looked at this in great depth. I just wanna remind you, you can go back and look at this in yourself here in Hebrews 9. The whole idea of Hebrews 9 is this, that there were sacrifices that were being made in the temple and now we have a better sacrifice, Yeshua, We have a better temple, Yeshua, and we see that there is a better um, way of life. Not getting rid of the law, but living in the spirit of the law. We have a better priest. You see, a priest that isn't um, based on his fleshly birth of having to be a Levite, but being born of the spirit and born of God. One that is not a corruptible life like the Aaronic priesthood, but one that has an incorruptible eternal life, Jesus Christ. That is the whole point of Hebrews chapter nine. And so what he's doing here in Hebrews nine and 10, chapter nine verses nine and 10 is he's talking about these sacrifices that the priests were doing under the old covenant and how those are no longer necessary because we have a better sacrifice in Jesus. And all those ordinances of sacrifice are replaced in Yeshua. That's the context of Hebrews nine, not what you're doing to obey the law or not obey the law. And then the Galatians verse, He says, you observe days, months, times, and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you my labor in vain. You go read in Galatians 4, and you're going to see this as well. I'm not going to go into great detail on this one tonight. But bottom line, this is an easy one that you can just go and read yourself. First of all, there is no mention of any Sabbath. He's not talking about the Sabbath being bad. He is talking about pagan days, months, times. Do you know that the pagans had way more festivals than even the Jews, the, 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 the Christians did? Yes, Paul is talking to Gentiles here. He's not talking to the Jews, and he's warning them about going back to their old ways of these pagan festivals, these pagan uh, observations. And so that's the context of those verses. Go look at it and you will see. Again, be a good Berean. So we wanna look here at Colossians, but before we do, let me show you one more commentary on Colossians. The New American Commentary says, the substance of the false teaching was the ritual observance of the law. The two concerns identified frequent battlegrounds in the early church. They were diet, what you eat or drink, and days. Religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or Sabbath days. In other words, what this are saying is that there were two main concerns in the days of Jesus and Paul and all of this. Two big doctrinal arguments. One was what you can eat and what you can't eat, and another was about the days of worship. Not necessarily about which day is the Sabbath, and not necessarily about what's clean and unclean. We're going to talk about that. But it goes on, some believers in more Gentile settings concern themselves with whether to worship on Sabbath or on Sunday. They also debated the question of participation in pagan holidays. And so here we're seeing, he's even talking about the debating about pagan holidays. Now the Saturday, Sunday thing, this is what this whole series is really about. And uh, what you're going to see Or what we've already talked about is that the early church was meeting on the Saturday Sabbath. The Sunday Sabbath kind of came about later. And uh, like I said, go listen to the previous ones if that's a shock to you. But let's go to Colossians now. And rather than seeing what man's opinion is about what's going on here in Colossians, let's let Paul have an opportunity to speak and tell us what he's referring to here. How do we do that? We look at the context of what's going on in the, uh, the, the book of Colossians. In chapter two, verse eight, it says this. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, before I read verse nine, I want you to understand this is what we call an inclusio statement. Now, uh, as uh, Daniel Joseph talked about this, this is one of the things he was saying that when it's very common in literature that this inclusio statement is often something that you begin with and then you'll talk about things and then you end with the same thing showing you that there's kind of a sandwich in between these the beginning and the end that says that what I'm talking about all of those things in between these bookends are to be included and therefore it gives you the context of what's being talked about. So when we see this word according to the traditions of men and the basic principles of this world, that is the beginning. He's going to end saying the same thing, saying that everything I've been talking about has to do with the traditions of men or the principles of this world. You'll understand more as we go on, but it continues in verse nine, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the, sins, body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, traditions of men, principles of the world. Let me ask you this one question. Is the law of God a tradition of men? Is it a principle of the world? Absolutely not. That's God's rules, God's word, not traditions of men, not principles of this world. It continues on here in verse 12 and it says this, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, just wanting you to get the context, I have this word buried highlighted because I want you to understand something. Today, many churches, we look at baptism as this this kind of an outward symbol of saying, hey, I'm a believer, hey everybody look. I gotta tell you, it's so much more than that. You look in Romans six, you look here, you look throughout the Bible, we see baptism is so much more than just some outward show, outward symbol. Baptism has meat and it is spiritual. I don't understand everything that goes on in baptism, but I can tell you this, that you're buried with Christ through baptism and raised to life through faith in Christ. There is some kind of burial that goes on spiritually here in baptism, and it is an important thing. Now this message isn't about baptism, so I'm not gonna get into that, But I want you to understand, go do your research and look at what Scripture says about baptism and stop just believing everything that you hear from other people. Scripturally, and even as far as what the first century church believed about baptism, as you study history, you see it was much more than some outward symbol or show. It is spiritually important. But anyway, it continues in verse 14 saying, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, you know what, before I get to verse 16, let's, let's talk about 14 and 15 here. A lot of people use this and see God nailed the, the law to the tree. He nailed it to the cross. He has taken it out of the way, it says here. This has been used so many times uh, in reference to saying that the law of God is no longer necessary. Guys, if this were true, again, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. But because of this confirmation bias that we have, people hear this and, oh, that's easy, great, there is no law, I don't have to do anything, I, need, I don't need to obey God. Listen, you don't need to obey God for your salvation. However, if you don't feel that you want to obey God, I'm gonna say you probably aren't a Christian, that you have deceived yourself and that you do not know Jesus Christ. Faith without works is dead, says James. That's in scripture. And so you need to be very careful about this confirmation bias so that you believe what you wanna believe so that you can go live a life you know, filled with whatever disobedience that you desire. It is so important that you understand this topic because of that. People have become lawless. And as a matter of fact, it, it tells us that in First John, I believe, chapter 2, where it says sin, you know, anyone who, who uh, sins or anyone who breaks the law sins. And in fact, sin is lawlessness. How do you know what sin is if you don't have the law? You see, the law is good. To say that, that Jesus is say, nailing the cross, the law to the cross so that it's all gone is to say that Romans needs to be kicked out of the Bible. When Paul says, do we then nullify the law? No, rather we uphold it. To say, what then, is the law bad? No, rather the law is good. So we, we could go through so many scripture verses talking about obedience in the New Testament and we would have to throw all of those out in order for your confirmation bias to read this as saying that the law is no longer uh, in my life. No, the law is, what he has nailed to the cross was the condemnation of that law. That's what Romans tells us, and we need to understand that because, uh, again, we deserve to die, why? Because we have broken the law of God. You can never be good enough. We deserve eternal death and damnation. But Jesus came, and he came to take that punishment for us, to be a propitiation for our sins. Where we belonged hanging on that cross, he said, I'm going to do it instead. And therefore, my punishment has been nailed on that cross. He took that in his body so that we might be forgiven that's what's going on here. And so when it says he nailed it to the cross, he's not talking about taking the law itself, but rather the condemnation of the law. I totally understand reading that without having the rest of the New Testament. I could say, yeah, God got rid of the law. But we have to read this in context with Romans and James and Timothy and Galatians and all the rest of it. Otherwise, even Revelation, the devil goes after those who keep the commandments of God. So, the point being is context is everything, not just within the book, but within all the books of the Bible. And so, don't think that verses 14 and 15 here, uh, using your confirmation bias, allows you to go and live a life of sin. It's not what it's saying. Verse 16 goes on, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Again, this is where we're getting the controversy from primarily. Verse 16 here. And there's no question there's some judging going on. And what's, uh, as you're about to see, but what this text is saying is, Let no one judge you according to these things. You see, I am judged all the time because I say Saturday is the Sabbath. But yet the scriptures say, don't let anybody judge you in regard to what you decide to eat or drink or a festival celebrating Sukkot or Passover or a new moon. I want you to understand, every one of these things mentioned here, God talks about, every one of them, and he talks about them as a good thing as a substance of Christ a picture of Christ and yes they are and they always will be when I celebrate Passover do you know what it reminds me and it is a picture of what Christ came and did on the cross for me but guess what there's a fourth cup of Passover that still talks about his second coming when you take and look at Sukkot guess what it's picturing his second coming the substance is of Christ but if you don't understand it how are you gonna understand the substance Therefore, these things are important. Okay, so no question there's judging going on, but is it from the law or is it from the traditions of men that you're being judged? If I'm going to be judged by the law of God in relation to these things, by keeping a Sabbath or whatever, uh, I'm not going to be judged. I'm going to be found innocent. It's the traditions of men that find me guilty for these things. You'll understand more as we go on because let me show you here in verse 18 as it continues. It says, let no one cheat you of your reward. You see, there's a reward in all of these things. Look at this. No one judge you in food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. Why? Because there's a reward in it. Now, you can get cheated out of that reward by taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. In other words, if I'm doing things and I'm going to look down and say, hey, I keep a Saturday Sabbath, but you guys, you, you, you worship on Sunday. I'm better than you. Who? I've just been robbed of my reward. Why? Because I'm taking delight in my false humility that there's something that I'm doing, first of all, and I'm being puffed up in my own mind looking down on you, and I shouldn't be judging you because you worship on Sunday. We should worship every day of the week like they did in the New Testament. We talked about that last week. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ, remember how that happened through baptism? From the basic principles of the world, Not the law of God. Why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? What kind of regulations? God's regulations or man's? That's the key here. Verse 21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Because of the confirmation bias of the church today, people read verse 21 and they think, Ah, see, that's talking about biblical things that say do not touch and do not handle and that's where you're gonna be wrong. I am gonna show you that the things that are being talked about here are not what God said do not touch and do not handle, but rather what man's traditions and the principles of this world, which again we are see mentioning here, are uh, being mandated on people. You see that bookend, remember we said at the beginning? It started out with the principles of this world, man-made regulations, and now, He's ending it. He's framing this conversation with those things, reminding us, I'm not talking about God's law, I'm talking about man's laws. You might say rabbinical uh, Judaism. Not biblical Judaism, but rabbinical Judaism. The difference? God's word and man's word. God said honor the Sabbath. But then Judaical, uh, I keep saying that wrong, but rabbinical Judaism basically said you take the Sabbath and now you can't even turn a light on on the Sabbath because God said don't light a fire. Uh, it gets so crazy. You look at, in the Talmud and thinks they have arguments about you open up the refrigerator, now the light's on. Uh-oh, can you still eat the food? Because you just turned a light on. And now when you turn, shut the refrigerator door, the light goes off. Did you just do work? and there's arguments about these you see this is rabbinical Judaism this is the principle of the world or traditions of men not God's laws and that is the context here verse 22 which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men again not God's laws so we need to keep that in mind as we look at this because Uh, Judaism, rabbinical Judaism is filled with what we call tachanot, man-made rules, because they have the written law, which I believe is what God gave us on Mount Sinai, and then they say, but there's the oral law, all these other things that are not written down, that uh, I don't believe are necessarily from God at all. So note here that in verse 21... What Paul is saying, I want you to note that blue, because uh, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You're going to see this uh, again, so just kind of take note of that for now. We'll address it later. But it also refers back to verse 16. And verse 16 said, let no one judge you in food or drink. See, what you're tasting, what you're handling, what you're touching. So it's referring back to that as well. Again, still under the principles of the traditions of men. Now, I want to show you the Talmud here. This is everyone's Talmud, kind of basically a commentary on it. And the Orthodox Jews say that you cannot understand the Torah without the oral law, which we were just talking about. It's it's kind of like a catechism, an explanation of God's law. It says this, foremost among the essentials of a well-cared-for body is cleanliness. It's not merely next to godliness, but a most important part of it. To wash the hands before touching food was strictly enjoined. Sanctify yourselves, as they quote Leviticus 11, verse 44. An example, washing the hands before the meal, and be ye holy washing after the meal. Whoever eats bread without first washing his hands is as though he had sinned with a harlot." Look at this, you eat without washing your hands, that's as bad as sleeping with a prostitute? Well, according to this catechism or oral law interpreting the written law of God in Leviticus 11. What did Leviticus 11 say? Not that, it said sanctify yourselves, be holy. And they said, well, what does that mean? That means you better wash your hands before you eat. Sounds like a confirmation bias, doesn't it? And this is what uh, the rabbinical Judaism made out of it. And this is the very thing that was going on in the first century that Paul was dealing with, that Jesus himself dealt with. And this is why Paul is addressing it in these letters. It is very intentional that Paul is talking to these people because he's addressing this pharisaical, rabbinical Judaism. Let me show you here as this commentary continues. It says, for whoever makes light of the washing of his hands will be uprooted from the world. Whoever eats bread without scouring his hands is as though he hates unclean bread. A person who despises the washing of hands before a meal is to be excommunicated. Kicked out of the church, that's how serious this was. There's even a benediction prescribed for the purpose. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by the commandments and commands us concerning the washing of the hands. Uh, Where? Yeah, see, it's not in the Torah at all. It's not in God's word. The cleanliness applied also to vessels used during a meal. Rinse the cup before drinking and after drinking. So more man-made traditions, principles of this world, the oral law that they added to the written law, all of it, rabbinical Judaism, all of it, traditions of men, all of it, washing and food and drink. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That's what all of this is about. Now, I'm gonna take you and just show you that Jesus himself was dealing with this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Notice that they're being rebuked because they do not keep the commandments of God. If Jesus was teaching us, that, hey, I'm about to get rid of the law, I don't think he'd be saying this. But rather, he's saying, you transgress my law for the sake of your man-made ones. Look, verse 7, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because this was a huge, I'm telling you, huge deal in Paul's day. Remember, the Pharisees were upset with the disciples here because they did not wash their hands. And Jesus says, that's a man-made thing. I've talked to you before in reference to Jesus never broke the the commandments. He never did in any way, shape, or form. He only broke man-made traditions. Uh, a while back I told you when he healed the man blind because uh, he he spit and made mud then he took the mud and put it in the guy's eyes why did he do that? He could have just said you know be healed, touch his eyes, he'd be clean but instead he did it for a reason because the Talmud, these man-made tachanot, basically said it's against the Sabbath to make mud on that day and Jesus is basically saying oh yeah, watch this this is what I think of your commandments. I'm going to keep mine, but I'm going to break yours. And guys, I think that he'd be saying the same thing for us today when we see churches being just so concerned about what color the carpet is or what color the paint is on the wall or, or where somebody sits or whatever the case might be. All these man-made rules and traditions that we have. And yet they're not something that's in the Bible at all. He goes on in verse 9 here in chapter 15 of Matthew and he says, In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Like I said, this is the church today. We have made so many doctrines out of the commandments of men. Things that we say, oh, you you can't have a church here, you can't have it face this way, you can't have it face that way, you can't wear these kind of clothes in church, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'll tell you what, we've got way more laws than God ever gave us. One of those even, you can't obey the law, so why try? You see, that's man's words, not God's. God says, be ye holy, sanctify yourselves. And we are sanctified through the word and through Jesus Christ. We can do all things through Christ who lives in us. Yes, I'll break the law, but thanks be to God, because he took away the condemnation. But notice here as well, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 22, it says, which all concern things which perish with the using, using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. The very same words that Paul is using is the exact same thing that Jesus used against the Pharisees. The very same thing that Jesus was rebuking, Paul is rebuking. Notice I'm letting scripture interpret scripture here. And that's what we have to do. Do not let your confirmation bias think that what Paul is talking about here in Colossians 2 are things that we should not be doing that are God's laws. That's not it at all. He's saying don't let anyone judge you according to these things that are godly. Keep them, regardless of whether they judge you on it or not. So, Orthodox Judaism, just like the church today, is filled with man-made rules. And we don't want to become like that. And I think that's a danger. There's no question about it. Because what he's warning about, don't have this, lose your reward by this false humility in judging others and say, well, I don't do that, but yet you do, so I must be a better Christian. No, that's that's not what this is about. But Luke shows us another example of this pharisaical law. He says this, And he laid his hands on her, Jesus did. Immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which you men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered and said, Hypocrites, Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? Again, understand that Colossians 2 is saying the exact same thing here. It's dealing with the traditions of men. And that's what Jesus was doing here. The tradition of man said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. God said, I never said that. Go back and look. It's not there. And so understanding the context of these man-made traditions... I believe is very important in understanding these type of passages that we're looking at. Another one that's often abused and used because of a confirmation bias against those who want to obey God's commandments is Romans chapter 14. And in Romans chapter 14 we see this typically it's called the weak and the strong and it deals here with basically days and food again. Look what it says here in Romans 14, verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Now, what I want you to see as we look here in Romans 14 is this. Is it talking about the Sabbath? As a matter of fact, is the Sabbath ever even mentioned? No, it says one day is considered more holy than another. Our confirmation bias says, oh, it must be talking about the Sabbath because God got rid of that. No, God did not get rid of that. Nowhere, therefore, maybe our confirmation bias is leading us astray and deceiving us the only way to get Sabbath out of this is not from the context, it is not from the word itself, but from a confirmation bias. People read that into this uh, text and basically insert it from their mind that he's talking about this Sabbath. Now, note as well here as we continue that both people that are being talked about a guy who considers this day holy or a guy that considers this day holy, both of them are believers. This is not about saved and unsaved people but both of them are believers. Note also that this context is primarily going to be about food. Why is this day associated with food? We'll talk about that. And also note that when we're talking about what they're eating we are not going to be talking about clean and unclean food, but rather we're going to be talking about vegetables and meat, that's the context. So we're gonna back up to verse one so that you can get the full context of this in Romans. It says this, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. In other words, a believer again, just weak in the faith. For one believes he may eat all things but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Again, same type of thing that we just got uh, finished looking at here in Colossians about judging. Let no one judge you. And now here it's warning us, don't judge those who eat only vegetables or don't judge those that eat meat or don't judge those who worship or celebrate this day or that day. As long as they're doing it for the Lord, then to his own master he will stand or fall and he will stand because God is able to make him stand. In other words, what we're seeing here is very clear that There are spiritual people doing things for spiritual reasons, and people were judging them for it. That's the context, and I wanna give you some history here that might even help kinda shine a light on this even more. Because in this New Testament commentary, you're going to see about a group of people called the Ebonites. And the Ebonites were were basically uh, believers, but they had different views, different theologies. And so Dr. Ernan here is going to tell you a little bit about the Ebionites and what they did. It says this, some of the Ebionites' distinctive concerns were embodied in their gospel. For example, since they believed that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross had put an end to all animal sacrifice in fulfillment of the Mosaic law, I agree, they appeared to have abstained from meat. In other words, they would not eat meat because they said Jesus got rid of the the sacrifices so therefore we no longer eat meat. I don't recall Jesus ever saying that. Matter of fact, I see Jesus eating fish and all kinds of things as well. But anyway, he goes on, their convictions on this score are evident in their gospels account of the diet of John the Baptist where the canonical statement that John ate locusts and wild honey is modified by the change of one letter so that now John the Baptist is in anticipation of the Ibionites themselves, maintains a strictly vegetarian cuisine, eating pancakes and wild honey. Let me explain what this is saying. In the Greek, the word locus is a crease. The word cake is a crease. The difference of one letter, a, i. Okay, a crease, and it changes the meaning completely. You see, a locust was considered to be meat. And so John the Baptist seemed to eat locusts and wild honey, meat and honey. But they changed that to say basically that John the Baptist didn't eat meat and honey, but he ate cakes and honey by changing that one letter and said it was in looking forward to the fact of the Ebionites' understanding that we would not eat meat that John the Baptist did this. First of all, the scriptures do not say that. Second of all, like I said, John the Baptist was before Jesus uh, died on the cross. And that sounds to me exactly like what we see today in what we call confirmation bias. You see, they were looking at scripture in an eisegesis way, reading into the text. They thought they already had a belief we don't eat meat so now they went to the text and they tried to make that text fit that's confirmation bias and it kept them from seeing the truth but now was this sinful for them to do that no if they did not eat meat and they gave thanks to God as Romans is saying then they're gonna stand by their own master but this is the kind of thing that is going on and uh, this is from the time of Christ now Uh, There's going to be another example here that I want to give you from this 4th century heresy hunter here. Um, Epiphanius against the Ebionites. And he's uh, going to be quoting Luke here in regards to the Passover. He says, And again, the Lord himself says, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And he did not simply say Passover, but this Passover so that no one could play with it in its own sense. A Passover, as I said, was meat. Meat roasted with fire and and the rest but to destroy deliberately the true passage these people have altered its text which is evident to everyone from the expressions that accompany it and represented the disciples as saying where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the passover and he supposedly saying did i really desire to eat meat at this passover with you in other words the Ebionites just like they changed that increase it they're saying that Jesus didn't say where do where are we going to I've eagerly desired to eat this passover with you where are we going to do it instead it was did I really want to eat meat with you at this passover like no we don't eat meat they changed the text because of their confirmation bias again the exact same thing that Romans 14 is talking about here one day, or one person eats meat; another man eats only vegetables. <clears throat> Both of them were okay. Clean food. Here is uh, the Panarian of uh, 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 this same guy, Epiphanius of Salamis, and this is in regards to the Nazarenes, not the Nazarenes, but the Nazarenes, and this too was a sect that was strictly vegetarian it says and so though they were jews who kept all the jewish observances they would not offer sacrifice or eat meat in their eyes it was unlawful to eat meat or make sacrifices with it just like the ebionites you also have the gnostics and uh, Zoroastrianism that also believe that they should not eat meat because to get rid of meat was to basically get rid of the ignorance in your life uh, today, it's not any different than what we would say a Seventh-day Adventist. Today we have Seventh-day Adventists, and, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them do not eat meat either. They see it as basically baking, in some ways, making them a little bit more spiritual because it, it removes the shackles of the world from them. Now, is it wrong for these Seventh-day Adventists not to eat meat? Absolutely not, because Paul is telling us in Romans one man whose faith is weak says I'm only going to eat vegetables but he says then if that man eats vegetables and he gives thanks to God then you know what he's going to stand to his own master don't judge him therefore if we look down on a seventh day Adventist because of not eating meat and they do it because of spiritual principles for the Lord it's okay You do not need to look down on them or judge them. That is what Romans 14 is talking about. And this is the very thing that we see that New Testament commentary was saying that these were two ideas that were big issues of the day that were being dealt with. Diet and which days uh, for, for certain things, not just worship. And so this is the kind of thing that you need to have to understand this context of Romans 14. I do not believe that without the confirmation bias that we have, that we've changed Sunday, we think Sunday is the Sabbath, without that cultural, not biblical, cultural man-made tradition, there's no reason that we would read Romans chapter 14 and think that he was talking about the Sabbath. But it's a confirmation bias that causes us to think that. Let me show you what Timothy says here in 1 Timothy 4 verse one. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. It is For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So, this context, the same thing that we've been talking about. I totally understand why some people will read this and think, Oh, God said we can eat everything. But that's not the context. If it were, then Peter, when he saw the pigs in the blanket coming down in Acts chapter 10 we see that he says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. If Jesus was teaching them that it was okay to eat unclean things, then there is absolutely no way he would have argued about that. But instead he says, no, Lord. And the church says, see, right there we have the idea that people can eat unclean food. And yet Peter himself tells us two times what that dream meant. He said it meant that the Gentiles were clean. It had absolutely nothing to do with what food we could eat. It had everything to do with the Gentiles being welcomed into the church. When he describes his dream and what it meant, he never once brings up what's allowable to be eaten. You see, that's a prime example, confirmation bias. Another one is in Mark, by the way. I don't remember which chapter where it talks about, you know, in so doing, Jesus declared all foods clean. People have brought that up to me and said, well, what do you say about this? Well, I say, go look in the Greek. It's not there. That's why it's in parentheses. That is not in the text. That is the confirmation bias of translators that put it in there to help you understand what they wanted you to believe or what they already believed themselves. Again, to say that he was saying everything is clean would mean that we have contradictions in other parts of the New Testament. And that is not what's going on here either. You see, notice that these are bad things too. Forbidding people to marry and abstaining from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Let me ask you, what foods did God create to be received with thanksgiving? Did he create rat for you to be, you know, as food to be received with thanksgiving? No, he did not. Did he, did he create dog vomit for you to be received as thanksg- in thanksgiving as food? No, he did not. When you would talk to anybody in the first century that was a Christian or a Jew and said, here, would you like some food? It would never enter their mind that you were going to be putting dog vomit or uh, a rat on that plate, because that's not food. And here it's saying forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God has okayed, which he has created to be received. He's not talking about food that God well, not even food, because it wouldn't be called food, things that God created not to be food, not to be received in the body and and to defile the temple of God. And it goes on by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Every creature of God. Oh, a pig. A pig. No, take it into context here. Every creature of God is good, just like Romans is talking about here in chapter 14, just like Colossians 2 is talking about. We're seeing that people have different views, and here was, can you eat meat at all? Can I have a good beef steak? Well, an Ebionite said absolutely not. Even though it was an animal that was created by God that was good and it was to created as food, and be uh, received with thanksgiving. They say, no, you are not to eat that. And he's saying, listen, even though every creature, that, that beef steak, it is good. And it does not need to be received. It can be received with thanksgiving because it's been sanctified by the word of God. You should give thanks as you eat it, and there is no condemnation, and there is no problem, and you are not breaking the law of God. There is no sin in it at all. Now, that's what this text is talking about, just like Colossians and just like the others. Because, again, to say that he's saying, oh, now you can eat everything, would mean Peter didn't get it in Acts chapter 10 and also throughout the rest of scripture so pig pork wasn't considered or uh, as food to a jew and to say otherwise is to say that the old testament law is indeed done away with nailed to the cross gone and we no longer need to keep it. Therefore, those Ten Commandments, which are also part of the law, you don't need to do that too, so go ahead and go steal. Go ahead and murder. Go ahead and commit adultery and be unfaithful to your spouse because the law is gone. So you don't need to do those things. Now, obviously, that's not what I'm saying. That's silly. And that is not what this is saying here either. And so go to the scriptures and see that the context is the same thing here in Colossians and Romans, that there were people eating meat. And he's saying, listen, meat is good. You can eat it with thanksgiving, but only the meat that God has created as food to be received with thanksgiving. So back to Romans 14 or verse five here, it says one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind He who observes the day, notice he doesn't say the Lord's day, it's just the day. What day is he talking about? And why is it being connected with food? He says, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord... He does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. So trying to make sure that there isn't any division and disunity in the body of Christ, Paul is writing this. So what, again, the question is, what is this day that he's talking about? It's not the Sabbath. He would have called it the Sabbath. It's a day of fasting because this is why he's going back to food here in verse 6. Otherwise, it seems like to mention this day is out of place in this entire chapter, but because he's talking about fastings and what you can eat, vegetables or meat or whatever, it's connected to that. And note that the blue here, the highlighted blue goes back to what we have here in this previous slide in Timothy. If you give God thanks whether you eat or you don't eat, right? This is what Timothy said, that God created food to be received with thanksgiving. So this is all about the food that we're eating. And the day is not talking about Saturday or Sunday, it's talking about which day you fast on. And again, history even uh, puts a spotlight on this even more. The Bible first, though, in Matthew 9, 14, it says that the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? You see, the Pharisees are basically thinking, hey, if we're suffering. How come they're not suffering, right? They were passing judgment on the disciples because they didn't fast on the days they did. Again, a huge topic in the early church. Matter of fact, uh, I've talked about the Didache before. This this uh, early uh, second century writing, about 100 to 110 AD, and it was a the, the church. You want to know what the church was thinking or what they thought about things? You read the Didache, and here's what it says: Let not your fast be with the hypocrites, for they fast on the second and fifth day of the week. But do you fast on the fourth day and the preparation day or Friday? Okay, Preparate Friday was preparing for the Sabbath. So first of all, notice that they recognize that the Sabbath was Saturday. But point being is that there were many fasts going on for spiritual reasons. And we see judgment being passed here saying, listen, these hypocrites, these Pharisees, they fast on the second and the fifth day of the week. But we, we don't do that. We fast on the fourth, you know, Wednesday and Friday. That's when we do it. So there was judgment going on, and this is what Colossians is dealing with. This is why he says, let no one judge you in regards to these things. This is why Romans is saying, don't judge them to his own master, he will stand or fall. So this is the context, okay? If these people had learned anything from Paul, they would have known. Paul has been saying, don't let anybody judge you. One man considers one day more important than another, fine. One day considers Wednesday and Friday, another guy considers Monday and Thursday. It doesn't matter, give thanks to God. That's the key. Now, again, I'm not letting history alone interpret this. History is simply highlighting what the Bible is telling us. Like I said, it doesn't talk about the Sabbath day. It doesn't talk about clean and unclean foods in that text that we've looked at so far. It's talking about the day, the day of fasting. Now, as we continue, we need to look at one other part here in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Again, don't judge. But rather resolve this not to to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. I know... That I am full convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Again, confirmation bias is, ah, pork is clean. Have we been talking about pork at all in this chapter? Not at all. As a matter of fact, we've been talking about vegetables, vegetarians versus meat eaters. People who ate beef steak. That's been the context of the whole thing. But these vegetarians considered a beef steak to be unclean. And now he's saying, no, there is nothing unclean in and of itself when we're talking about food, what the Bible calls food. But let me tell you something. If you are a vegetarian and you consider a beef steak to be unclean, then to you it is unclean because you're you're compromising your morals, your beliefs. And this is what it will continue to say. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. Okay. Leviticus talks about clean and unclean foods. That's the context to some extent here but it the Ebionites transferred okay well pork is unclean to all meat is unclean that was not in Leviticus that was Tachnot that was man-made principles that was principles of the world and so you just have to take that context of the whole chapter here that these vegetarians saw meat as unclean and Paul's not saying rat is clean but rather nothing of what God has given us for food, like clean things, is to be called unclean. But if you think it is, then it is unclean. So a beefsteak is not unclean in itself, but it can be if you see it as unclean in your weak faith. Now, I I don't want you to, and this is the danger of basically this verse by using confirmation bias it's basically if you have a confirmation bias and say that this is saying that you can eat anything you want as long as your heart's in the right place what's to stop you from saying well not only can you not eat whatever you want but you can sleep with whoever you want because these commandments really don't matter and therefore not only can you sleep with whoever you want you can steal whatever you want as long as you give thanks to god You know, you can go steal from a store and say, hey, thank you, God, for letting me not get caught and providing this brand new pair of tennis shoes, whatever the case may be. Silly, isn't it? But that's the logical conclusion. When we use confirmation bias to say that this verse is telling us about pork is now clean, it would be the same as saying, well, then all of the laws really just determine what you decide, what's in your heart about it. And that is not the case at all, as we have said. So we continue in Romans here and he continues saying, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. It's good neither to eat meat, again, we're not talking about unclean, we're talking about that vegetarians versus meat. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. So, again, it has absolutely nothing to do with the Sabbath. and wasn't even mentioned. It has nothing to do with what is biblically clean and unclean, but rather what man-made traditions were saying were clean and unclean. And a warning not to judge others for doing things that are acceptable by God, but unacceptable in their own conscience. That they were doing those things for spiritual reasons. Therefore, we should not be judging a Seventh-day Adventist for not eating meat because they're doing it for the Lord. They're doing it for their reasons and if that's what they wanna do, fine. They have the freedom to eat that meat, but to them they don't, therefore they shouldn't and you should not judge them. But again, we never approve of lawlessness. To say that this is speaking about anything other than what I've been explaining to you would say, well, if you approve of it, even though it's lawless, it's against God's commands, that's okay, no judgment here. No, you see, the Bible actually says we are to judge righteously, and we are to judge people who are sinning. This isn't sin. This isn't, and again, what is sin? Let the Bible define what sin is, right? First John 2, sin is lawlessness. That's what it is. Breaking the law. God's law in breaking that defines what sin is. So, next slide here I want to show you Peter warned us that there would be people that were going to twist these kind of things. He says this in Second Peter 3 verse 15, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You see, Peter warned us that Paul's writings could be hard to understand. That when you read Paul's writings, Colossians, when you read Romans, when you read Galatians, you need to be careful because it could be misunderstood as we have seen happening in the church. But I also want you to understand this. Who's gonna misunderstand it? Who's gonna twist it? Those people who are untaught and unstable. In other words, if you do not know the word of God, you are the one that are going to easily be able to twist these scriptures. If you don't know God's word, you become unstable. And if you're unstable, then you might twist things that become sinful. And let that be a warning to you then, that we need to let scripture interpret scripture, not our confirmation biased. Because that confirmation bias has put so many false teachings and false doctrines into the churches And it's time for it to stop. And we need to stand firmly on the Word of God, all of it, Old Testament and New, realizing that the law of God is good, as Romans tells us. And it is not only good, it is holy, it is righteous and good. And that it is not done away with, but the condemnation of the law is. And we should give thanks to God for that. And that this law is not about salvation. If it was, we're all doomed to hell because nobody can keep the law. But we should, as Jeremiah prophesied and told us that there was a day coming when that law would be taken from stone and it would be placed on our hearts and in our minds. Not thrown away, but under the new covenant, the law, the condemnation is gone and now we should have a desire to obey it a desire to chase after it. And when we fail, we have the knowledge of salvation, forgiveness through Yeshua, Jesus Christ. That's what you need to understand here. And so hopefully that helps clear up some of these uh, verses, these texts that are often misunderstood. And once again, go to patreon.com forward slash creation instruction to hear some more. So God bless.